How you guys doing this morning? Thanks. Doing well? Cool. Uh, so before we dive into the word, I wanted to address something. Um, was able to talk with a few of the elders. Uh, if you've been on social media all this last week, you've been watching TV, uh, you know about the rallies and the protests going on in our country. And I want to briefly cover something uh, for how we think about this as Christians, right? So we at this church believe every single person is created in the image of God. It means everyone has equal value and worth and dignity. This is what theologians call the Imago Dei, right? So this is like fundamental Christian teaching. Everyone is made in the image of God. So that is why it is abhorrent and antithetical to the Christian religion and to us as Christians for any one person or group of people to claim supremacy over another person or group of people. Not only is racism white nationalism, and Nazism sinful, but is actually demonic in nature. And we as a church and those bearing the name of Christ stand against it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and so what we do is we call it for what it is. We call it evil and we mourn over it. And we ask the Lord Jesus to save and come and heal. I don't, I don't think that needed to necessarily be stated, but we are saying it right now because of what is going on. Um, so with that, pray with me, uh, and then we'll jump into the Word of God. Dear Lord, we praise you that um, Christ has broken down the dividing wall. We praise you that uh, you, are, you are good, that you draw all men unto yourself, that heaven is going to be filled with people worshiping you, every tongue and tribe and nation, and we can't wait for that day. And God, we do. We mourn over, we mourn over uh, the evil we see in our own country. We mourn over the evil we even see in our own hearts. So we examine ourselves and we say, Lord, search me and know me. Is there any anxious way in us? God, we ask for harmony. We ask for shalom. We ask for peace. Um, and we call out to you when we don't know what else to do. And we say, Lord Jesus, bring your good news. Bring your gospel and heal. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Uh, so uh, before I even get into the sermon, I'm going to make a book recommendation. So this is called Evangelism in the Sovereignty of God. Uh, there's a lot I can't cover in 40, 45 minutes of a sermon that the author, J.I. Packer, addresses beautifully and concisely how we to think about evangelism uh, as it relates to God's sovereignty. Uh, can't recommend this highly enough. It's not too long, just over 100 pages. So, book recommendation, go on Amazon if you like buying books. Uh, if you like reading books, also read it. <laughs> That's only me, right? I've... I sometimes I like buying books more than I like reading. Okay, Matthew 22 is what we're going to be doing today. Please turn there. I will be preaching and teaching from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, I'll read the text, verses 1 through 14. Pray, and we'll get into it. Matthew 22, verse 1 through 14. And again Jesus spoke to them 
in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to, his, said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, this is your word, and now we come underneath it. I ask by your Holy Spirit, you would come and you would teach us. Would you illumine these truths, God? Where there are ways our hearts are resistant to your word, uh, would you woo us? Would you show us truth? And God, I ask you would be so pleased to save this morning here on the spot that as people hear the gospel, they would believe that they would hear the invitation to the wedding feast. I admit I'm powerless to do that, but if your spirit would come, you are more than able. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Sorry, I've got a really dry throat. Okay, so about a year and a half ago, I had the privilege of marrying, doing the ceremony of a couple of my best friends. They asked me uh, if I would officiate their wedding. And one of my best friends, the groom, he sent out in months in months and months ahead of time an email detailing everything we would do. I had a bachelor party, I had uh, like where we'd be staying, the day of the wedding, all kinds of details, and also had what he wanted us uh, as his groomsmen, as his officiant, to wear for the wedding. Uh, and what we would be wearing specifically for pants were a navy blue, thin-cut, like, slim slack, right? Even Bar 3, I remember the exact brand, Find out Macy's, it was on sale at the time, clear link, everything. Uh, he loves the details. So, uh, fast forward, it's all the excitement and the bliss of a wedding day, right? We're, we're staying at a place in Ojai, just a beautiful, beautiful property. And the time's come uh, to take pictures. So, okay, we all got to get ready and we're putting on our clothes. Uh, so we put on our nice clothes for the pictures. We're all ready, doing our hair, trying to tie ties, whatever, we're doing our thing. And one of the groomsmen, one of the groomsmen, he walks out. He's just standing around. He doesn't say anything. He's just standing with us, talking with us. Um, look at him. He has a pair of brown pants on. And he, and he doesn't say a thing about it. He's just standing there. And uh, a few minutes go by and we say, um, hey, we say his name. Hey, uh, 
your pants are brown. And no joke, he stands there and says, in complete seriousness, yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't notice. <laughs> We're like, are you serious? Like, you thought, you thought we wouldn't notice. You had months of time, months of time. You thought, and he, his explanation was, oh, so he gave us a little explanation. He said, well, there's two pants hanging up, and there were the brown pants, and then there were the blue pants, and I grabbed the brown pants instead. I'm like, well, yeah, you did, but like, those are the wrong pants. Why didn't you tell someone? So we had to do emergency run, had a guy go floor it to Macy's, got some pants, but we're taking pictures, and he's just trying to hide himself, right? Trying to like creatively, and we're not trying to make it look forced, but the guy has brown pants on for the wedding, for the wedding, months ahead of time. So where, where are we in the text? Where are we in the text? Here's where we are. Uh, if we scoot back a couple of verses, Matthew 21, verse 45 says this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. So this is the third parable Jesus is telling them. And somewhere along the line where Jesus is telling them these stories, the Pharisees say them, so they're, they're listening to this. Hey, wait a minute. Like, you're talking about me. You're talking about me right now. And Jesus, what's he doing right now? He's telling them a third story. And what Jesus is doing is he's loving them enough to say, hey, your pants are brown. <laughs> right? That's what Jesus is doing. So let's get into the story. Read verse 2 and 3. Jesus begins, masterful storyteller he is. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So a king is giving a wedding feast for his son. The servants go to those who are invited, and these are, these are people who's a king going to invite to his wedding feast, his son's wedding feast. It's going to be the more well-to-do, the upper-class people, the people uh, who are known, who you want at an event. He's sending out the save the date. This is like the ancient save the date of the time. Uh, probably like high exposure, black and white, nice little Polaroid he sends out to everyone. Um, he sends out, but they won't come. They won't come. He sends out the wedding invite. Hey, we're going to have a wedding feast. Nobody responds to it. So the king, he sweetens the pot a little bit. Uh, verse 4 says this. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So you guys know what this is. You know what this is. You're invited over to somebody's house, and you kind of respond, oh, I don't know what I'm doing that day. I'm not really sure. And so then the person, right, they sweeten the pot a little bit. Uh, so uh, modern language maybe says, oh, really? Because we're having some filet mignon. You saw, oh, or for you Santa Barbarians, um, a beautiful vegan dish, maybe some press juicer, whatever it is for you guys. Um, and then suddenly, oh, you know what? I think my calendar opened up. I think my calendar opened up. But these people he invited, these people he invited, they still won't come. He says, I'm preparing a feast for you. And they still don't respond. Now, pause right here, okay? Because the story is going to escalate very quickly. The story begins as a wedding feast, and we are going to see it escalate incredibly quickly. Jesus is not just telling them fun stories just to tickle their ears. 
He's loving them enough to tell them what they need to know. So we're all on the same page about the parable. Um, It's not just about a random king that's given a wedding feast. The king is the father. The king is God. The son is Christ. The wedding feast is the wedding supper of the lamb. It's heaven. It's the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. The servants are the prophets of God throughout the Old Testament. God sent his prophets to Israel and he said, repent, turn back to God, love him and serve him, but they would not. They would not turn away from their idols. And Jesus here is indicting the Pharisees. He says, you rejected the prophets and here it's speaking to us as well. So it's going to escalate quickly. Verse 5 and 6. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized, seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now, I want us to notice something here. There are various ways to reject God, to reject the invitation to the wedding feast. Uh, one is the kind of gnarly thing that we think of, right? It's either like just the rebellious heathen and you look at them, oh, that person is a sinner. Or, uh, or it's the kind of insane, uh, it's the kind of extreme religionist, right? The extreme religionist uh, who goes and kills God's people, who kills God's people in their zeal for their own religion. Now, what I want to say about that is it's kind of interesting because God seems to have a certain affection for saving those extreme religionists. I don't know if you've heard of the Apostle Paul. God comes to him on the road to Damascus, turns him around, right? So we think rejecting God, oh, of course it's the people that are killing, and that is true. God does have a certain affection, but there is another way to reject God. There's another way to reject God. And the other is this. Go back to your farm, go back to your business, and forget. To enjoy the good gifts of the king, food, sex, a hike, the beach, family, and all the while ignore the wedding invitation. All the while ignore. Max out the 401k, put it in, put in what you can in the Roth, a little wine tasting in the countryside. Be so busy that you are completely missing out on the realities of life. And I am far more concerned living here where we live about the second, about being so busy you miss out on the realities of life. You just go back to your farm. You go back to your business. Um, I'm far more concerned of us who that is our struggle. That is our, uh, that is our lot in life, right? Like there are people here in this church, maybe you're one who are just dying inside. You are dying inside and you come in and you go out and you just go back to normal life, but you're neck deep in addiction, you're nursing all sorts of bitterness, and you're full of shame, you're depressed, and you're numb, and you come in, and then you just go back out to everyday life. Oh, back to work. Never hearing, never applying what this word is saying. And Jesus is loving us enough to say, hey, listen, there is a wedding invitation, and I'm pleading with you to hear the good news about Christ today, and don't just go back to normal life. Don't just go back. The king's invitation demands a response. It demands a response. Verses 7 through 10. 
the king responds, The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So these verses anticipate not just the king's judgment on all people, but in fact his kindness in the gospel going out to all people. Okay, okay, I invited, I invited the well-to-do. I invited the well-to-do. They would not come. I'm going. We are giving the gospel out to all people, the Gentiles uh, coming. And I love, I love in verse 9 the words, the two words, go therefore, right? And what does that do if you're reading through the gospel of Matthew? It has to bring up in your head, right, the great commission where Christ says, go therefore, go therefore. And this is what, why we as a church, this is why anticipating why we as a church are endeavoring to send people to the unreached, to people who have never heard the name of Christ to give their lives for the one who gave his life for us, we said they need to go. And it's why I, as a youth pastor, am pleading with God, Lord, please send missionaries from our youth group. God, raise up church planners. God, do this in our youth group. Do this in our church. It's anticipating the gospel going out to all people. And if I don't stop, I'm going to preach a completely different message, okay? So, uh, verses 11 through 14. Gospel goes out, the invitation goes out to all people, both good and bad. And let me deal with that real quick. Uh, good and bad is not speaking theologically. We know no one is righteous before God. No one is righteous in themselves before God. But it is speaking from a human standpoint, both those who we would expect to get the invite and those who we would never expect. The good and the bad, the gospel invitation, the wedding invitation goes out. Verses 11 and 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, few are chosen. This is the word of God. What it says is true, and what it says is also ultimately for our good and our joy and God's glory. Amen? Amen. So, when we come to God's word, and there are things we say, how can that be? I don't like that. We need to come under the word of God and think critically and thoughtfully and ask the really hard questions, but come under God's word. So, with that, here's what happens. There is, the wet, in the wedding hall, someone who is not wearing the proper clothing. They're not wearing the proper clothing. This is an offense and an insult to the king. And there are no good excuses the man has. There are no good excuses. The king gives him a chance. Hey, why aren't you wearing a proper wedding clothing? And the man is speechless, utterly speechless. He does not have an excuse. He has had months of time. Many, many commentators would say that actually, uh, in order not to distinguish the bad from the good that come into the wedding feast, the king might even prepare and give out clothes to people. So you wouldn't be able to see, oh, that person's rich, that person's poor. 
But whatever, whatever the case is, we can say this man clearly has no excuse. He knows he's guilty. He is speechless. And so the king says, throw him out into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is a picture of hell. Now, our immediate reaction is, how dare he? Right? I, I get that. I feel that. I feel that. But we, in our thoughts and feelings, we need to be guided by the word of God. Like, I get how dare he, but we need to think and be guided in our thinking according to God's word. So, I could answer that objection. How dare he? How dare the king cast him in the hour of darkness for not wearing the right cloak? Like, how dare he? But I can answer that in a few, in a few ways. Uh, we could go a philosophical route right? We could, uh, we, could, we could appeal to the fact that anyone on social media or TV this week have seen everyone is crying out for justice on every side and wants justice to come. We all want justice. And a God that could idly stand by and see rape and genocide and all kinds of evil without any repercussions is not a loving God. He is not, nor would he be just. Nor would he be just. We also know that the more loving you are, actually, the more wrath you have, right? So, uh, any of you guys, um, a person hits your car, person hits your car, drunk driver hits your car, your car is ruined, you have a right amount of anger, and it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry. Don't sin in your anger, right? But it's okay to feel that I'm angry. That car hits your car and ends up killing a child, you are going to feel more anger and it is right because you love that child more than you love your car. And a God who is all loving must have wrath, must have wrath. There is evil in the world, which there is. Now, what we all want to do is, uh, well, I'm not a rapist and I'm not, a, uh, I'm not committing genocide. I'm not doing those kinds of evils. But we all want justice against those who commit evil against us, right? But we all want mercy we all want mercy when we are the perpetrator, when we are the perpetrator, and we can't have it both ways. Philosophically, you cannot have it both ways. Literarily, that is in the story. In the story, I could argue uh, it is completely right and just for the king who has sent out multiple invitations, given months of heads up time at this point after he has beseeched and invited and sought after people to come into his wedding feast when the king has done all of that and someone comes in and says, I'm not going to listen to what the king wants. I'm going to come on my own terms. For him to kick him out, that is completely right and just from the story. Or we could say, theologically, we know that God is good and he is always just. He is good and he is always just. And as creator, he gets to decide what good and evil is. We could we could answer all those different ways. I think those are good reasons, but what I want us to do is I want us to draw our attention to the one telling the story. I want us to look at the one telling the story. And we say, when in our hearts we read this and we say, how dare we? We say, how dare Jesus say that someone be bound hand and foot, cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? How dare he do that? But Jesus himself is the fullness the most explicit revelation of God we have where love and justice and wrath and grace 
and all of the attributes of God meet in him. He is not some God looking just to smash people. He is the one who humbled himself and came down to earth. If we just look at one scene from Jesus' life, in Luke 7, Jesus is eating some dinner and people, uh, a woman of the city uh, comes, into, uh, comes into the dinner. doesn't mean she's like a metropolitan woman. It means like um, she's probably a prostitute. Uh, so she comes in, she sits down, and everyone starts looking at her. Like, what is she doing here? What is she doing here? And Jesus, he looks at her, but he sees her. Right? Everyone else with their own eyes, they see her and they think something, but Jesus, with a pure heart, sees her. He asks, he asks Simon, who's thinking, the time, what's she doing here? He says, hey, let me ask you a question. Two men own a, owe a debt. One is an incredible amount of money. The other is a significant debt. Both are forgiven. Who loves the one who forgave them more? He says, I suppose the one who had the greater debt forgiven. He says, you're right. He who is forgiven much loves much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. That is the character and nature of our God. But Jesus is the great prophet of God, and so he is warning the people of the judgment of God. As the prophet, the great prophet of God, he is warning them there is coming a judgment, just as the Old Testament prophets have done. So Jesus is doing again. But Jesus, not only prophet, but the very eternal Son of God, would not just warn of judgment, but in a matter of weeks, he himself would take upon himself the judgment of God. He would die for hell-bound sinners as they gnashed their teeth, yelling, crucify him. He would be bound hand and foot to the wood, to a cross made of wood of a tree he created. Nails driven into his hands with a crown of thorns on his head, reading, Hail, King of the Jews, meant to mock him as the true king of the universe is hanging on a tree. And not only that physical suffering, but he, the eternal son of God, the light of the world, as the sky would go black, was cast into outer darkness as he hung on that cross and absorbed the wrath of God in our place. And Jesus now calls hell-bound sinners, which is all of us, which is all of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one's seeking after God. No one desires God. No one seeks him. He says, now you come to me. I am calling you to do that. Now, we need to read verse 14, because this is going to be Jesus' explanation of the parable. And it's, to some of us, it's going to leave us wanting a little bit more, but it's his explanation, and the rest of scripture gives illumination to it. So, verse 14. Many are called for, for, or because, therefore, for many are called, but few are chosen. What is Jesus saying, and why is he saying that? What is he saying, and why is he saying that? Jesus here is alluding, is alluding to the doctrine of election. 
He's alluding to the doctrine of election. We could go a lot of different places in the Bible. We can go Romans 8, 9, 10, 11. We can go there. We can go John 6. We could go Acts 13. But for today, we're going to go to Ephesians 1. So turn to Ephesians 1, and we're going there because this is the text that God used to save me. This is the text that God used to save me. So what is the doctrine of election? Doctrine of election, Ephesians 1, is this. Paul begins, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The doctrine of election is that glorious and mysterious truth. If you notice, that is scripture. That is scripture for the definition. I added the words glorious, which we could all say of God, right? And I added the word mysterious, which who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid, right? So it is that truth. It's not truth, but like you need that truth not just to hear it, but you need it to seep into your soul. Because this means, this means that in the darkest night of the soul, in the midst of despair over sin in our lives, knowing full well, when we know full well, I am unworthy and I am filled with shame, I am terrified because of the things I've done, because the things done against me, I'm unlovable. Though I feel wholly unworthy and covered with shame and unlovable, means we can say to ourselves, I am not because God, knowing everything I would ever do, every shameful night, every impassioned lust, every lash out against God, every abuse and rebellion against the creator of the universe, God, knowing all that said, I choose you. I choose you. And so from a divine point of view, God chose me. And so though it would be true, I would be unlovable because of the things I've done, because of the things done against me, it can no longer possibly be true because before the foundation of the world, God chose me that I should be holy and blameless before him. And why did he do it? We can only say it's according to the purpose of his will. And we can look at Jesus' life and his character and his mercy and his grace and say, it has to be good and it has to be wise because I know God is always good and he is always wise. And then I look at Ephesians 1.13, and it says this. It says, In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So I can know from a human point of view, that's what happened, right? Like, I'm sitting there in Santa Barbara City College as a sophomore in college, just filled with shame because of my sin, and nobody can know it because I'm like, I'm doing well, right? And I'm a religious studies student, and I should be better than this, and I should have done better, and people have hurt you, and what do you do with it? But I'm sitting there, and I hear he chose me before the foundations of the world, and I hear the gospel of my salvation, that Christ died on the cross 
for me, and I hear that, and I believe in Christ, and I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the two, they aren't at war, that God chose me, and that I believed in him. Those two beautifully come together in a paradox, a mysterious, glorious truth. And at that moment, it just melts my heart and makes me say, Father, I have no rights to demand of you. I have no rights to demand of you. You loved me when I was unlovable, and I will tell everyone about you. And with every breath I breathe and every ounce of strength I have, I will praise you and I will worship you. Because, not because I chose you, but because you chose me. And everyone who has believed on Christ will one day at the wedding feast of the Lamb see Christ face to face. And with tear-filled eyes and a heart welling up, No one's going to say, I chose you. Everyone will look at him and say, you chose me? And so election humbles us. And it glorifies a God who chooses to save hell-bound sinners through their faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. So why is Jesus saying this here? He's saying it because he loves the Pharisee enough to shock them into examining themselves. It's the same reason he says in Matthew 7, 14. It's the same thing he's doing, right? He's warning them. 7, 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. He's doing the same thing here. He's saying, I'm warning you. I'm warning you to examine yourselves. And arguably what the parable does to us, and makes us ask the question, am I chosen? Am I chosen? That's what the parable does. So what does it mean to be chosen? To be chosen is to come to God on God's terms. What is this, what is this wedding garment? What is this wedding garment? We can say the wedding garment is to come to God on, on God's terms. That's, that's what it is. To add more to it would be an injustice to the story, it means that he wasn't chosen in the wedding feast because he refused the dress that God provides, which is Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. So you're asking yourself, like, am I chosen? Well, do you hear this? And do you desperately want it to be true? You desperately want it to be true? And the question we're to, we're to ask isn't, the question isn't, am I chosen, right? That's a futile question in the long run. The question is, am I trusting in Christ alone? Am I trusting that what he did was enough and that is the only hope I have? Is that is the only hope I have? So let me take some excuses away, okay? John 6, verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is no one in this room who wants to repent, who wants to come to God, that God will not accept. Only people in here who would refuse to repent. He will never cast out anyone who come to him. Anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Anyone. So, examine yourself. We are to examine ourselves. And as we look into our own hearts, For every second you look into your own heart, spend a minute staring 
at the cross. Are you a Christian in here, but struggling? Not, like, I mean actually struggling, right? Not like, how, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, well, I was pretty tempted. Which, I, after I have that conversation, oh, that's cool. They're tempted and they never give in to temptation, right? Like, it's been a hard week, but I don't give in to temptation. I mean struggling, like you're tempted and you give in to sin. And you're like struggling in the midst of it. And it's hard. And you're wondering, could God still love me? Like, I, I knew better and I kept doing the cross is God's statement to the world. One, he outs you, right? He's, hey, God needed to die for you, okay? It shouldn't shock you that you are sinful. It should not shock anyone that they are sinful, right? God had to die on the cross for you. That shouldn't shock you. But it also says, conjunction with everything we've been looking at, that God knew He knew you. He knew all that you would struggle with. He knew what he was getting into when he saved you. It's not like at this point now, God's like, man, I'm really, uh, in eternity past, it really seemed like a good decision to uh, save these people. But, you know, three years in, I was expecting better performance. That is not true. That's just not true. It's not true. It means that he likes you. He loves you. He chose you. God knew what he was getting when he saved you. Are you religious? Religious. I mean, you, you come here and you do the thing and probably have, maybe you're part of some ministry and sometimes you read and you come here, live a decent enough life that you're, you're terrified. You're terrified, right? Like what if people actually knew what's going on in me? What if people knew, like, I'm so in debt? Or what if people, whatever it is, like, what if people knew, like, I have an addiction to this? What if people know, like, this is my real struggle? This is where I'm out? What I, people can't know because then well, they look at me and I'm, I'm supposed to be doing good. I'm supposed to be doing well. Like, and if they knew that, like, God, maybe he couldn't love me. Or maybe you're just proud you've made better choices than other people. I've made better choices. The reason I'm a Christian is because I made some better choices. No one, no one is a Christian because they made better choices than others. Let me tell you something. I think the religious, what we think, what we think they need, and they do to a certain extent, Jesus is shocking them right now, right? He's telling them the story that starts, can we see the irony of it real quick? Starts as a wedding feast, ends with weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're like, that took a turn, Jesus. Um, <laughs> Reminds me of Anchorman. I escalated quickly. Uh, sorry. Uh, so, but we think, we think, man, they know all this stuff and they just need to do better now. Like, apply it to your life. Just do it. And sometimes religious people, they need to be shocked. We, I'm, the reason I might know well, I'm a religious person. I'm like, this is me. Like, it's because we need to be shocked. Like, wait, am I trusting them? But then they need to know that their shame their fear, it's not a problem for God. Your shame isn't a problem for God. There's no sin. There's no addiction. There's nothing that you come to God and you be honest with him, with the community of faith, that he would ever say, I don't love you because you did that. 
Nothing ever, ever. And he's shocking them into saying, just be honest. Come out. Be honest about where you're struggling. Confess your sin and trust that the cross is enough. In the moment of your struggle, in the moment of being neck deep in sin, in shame, in doubt, trusting the cross is enough and God looks at you and he looks at you with all the love and all the affection he has for his own son who had never done any of them but had only done righteousness. That is the good news of the cross, of the gospel. So, God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. And I'd be so bold to say, you're here today to hear this message. Because God is wooing you to himself. He's drawing you. He's saying, come, come clean. I know you're so scared, but I can handle it. I can handle it. There's a wedding feast. Heaven isn't a place that's for people who are afraid of hell. It's for those who have seen Christ and see, you're more beautiful than anything I've ever seen. And so all my life is yours. There's a wedding feast coming. The invitation is this. Come to him on his terms. It means nothing, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Come to him. He will not reject any who come to him. Come to the wedding feast. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you now draw people to see the beauty of what Christ on the cross did? Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with their own sense of unworthiness, would they just, would they see the cross? Would they see what you did? And would they trust solely in that? Would they not trust in anything else, their own getting better in the next few weeks? Whatever it is, God, would they only trust in you and compel them, God? I believe that if you show the beauty of Christ, sinners will come to you. That's what happened throughout the entire gospel, God. Sinners found you beautiful and attractive. And I ask you to save religious people too. Thank you that you love us enough to tell us you're not ready for the wedding feast. You're invited, but you need to trust in what I give. And so God, I ask now, people come, confess their sin, take communion. Thank you that we can look back and say, God, I trust in you, but you chose me. Thank you for how that takes away our shame. Come meet with your church. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.